Hi, everybody. This is uh, Gatsad. I'm very, very excited today to have uh, a controversial fellow from Stanford, Jay Batasharia. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Gatsad. It's so a pleasure to be, with, be here with you. Likewise. Uh, so let me just tell the, the folks who may not know you, uh, your you know your position and so on. You're a professor of medicine at, Stan at Stanford, and you truly are. In soccer, you have one club players. They stay their whole life in one club. You're a one club or one university guy for your undergrad, master's, MD, PhD. Now you're a professor. You've never left Stanford. So I, I, <laughs> for three years, I worked at, Ran, at the Rand Corporation, but I got called back to the mothership, as they say. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Uh, you're So you're a professor of medicine, but also a professor of economics by courtesy, also at Stanford. You have an MD, so you're a physician, but you're also a PhD in health economics. You're a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. There's a whole bunch of other stuff, but we don't have four hours to go through all your bio. Did I cover the main points? <laughs> Uh, you'll be really bored if you go through all of them, God. So yeah, I mean, it's I, I I do I have a medical degree and I have an economics degree and I do health policy. I've been doing uh, infectious disease epidemiology for over twenty years uh, at Stanford, um, and uh, you know, it's just it's been um, kind of was an interesting time the last three years given my background. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to all that, uh, but I guess first before we I ask you about the Stanford conference that we both recently uh, returned from. Uh, do you still do you practice as a physician or you you no longer practice? No, I don't practice. I, I, in fact, I've never practiced. What I do is I do research for a living. I write papers, put in peer-reviewed journals. Um, before the pandemic, uh, that's all I did. I, well, that plus I teach students. I teach medical students um, uh, and and, uh, uh, and undergrad economic students. Uh, I mean, it's been it's been a great career. It's been really really fun. Uh, you get to interact with really fun people. Uh, I write papers and go into journals, argue with, you know, referee number two for, for a little while. And then, <laughs> then five people read my paper. It was a, it was a fun, quiet life. Um, but what, uh, what led you, I mean, when you first, you first got your MD before your PhD, correct? Uh, no, actually I did them simultaneously. I started okay. my MD before. Yeah. Was the goal always to just get sort of the MD as part of your sort of business card, but never to practice medicine? Or is this something that happened accidentally? That you no, didn't I mean, I I always wanted to be a doctor. I always wanted to practice medicine when I was when I was growing up. Uh, still love the science behind it. Uh, but what happened was that I just fell in love with research. I fell in love with economics. And uh, when I was going through the 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 you know MD and the PhD in graduate school, um, I just I, I thought to myself, do I really want to spend my what do I really want to spend my life doing? And I made a conscious decision that research was that. I mean, I just have a natural bent toward research. Uh, I, I love math. I love science. I love being able to think about issues for a long time before, uh, you know, before weighing in um, uh, and, and, you know, applying data. I, I actually really also, believe it or not, like being corrected by others, uh, which is, a, I, I mean, should be, I think it'd be like a, a, the normal thing in science. I, I, especially when my students correct me, it's a wonderful, I mean, I feel like I've succeeded in life. You're um, basically busting all of the stereotypes of a physician. Number one, you're actually a very sweet individual. I think I had told you uh, privately that you exude this very, you know, gentle, lovely aura. You don't have a God complex. Number one, busted myth. All physicians uh, have a God complex. Number two, you like to be corrected. That can't go hand in hand with a physician because a physician we know is all knowing. Shut up, Rube. I tell you what you do. So, so maybe that's why you didn't practice medicine because you don't fit any of the personality profiles that are needed to be a physician. I mean, I've had I've had very nice physicians before. I mean, it's it's 
it obviously it's just like any human endeavor. There's a wide range of, of personalities involved. Um, the, the, you asked about the Academic Freedom Conference. To me, that was that was a central moment in the pandemic, actually, uh, because what happened was that we've had on campuses around the world, and certainly on my campus, we've had a suppression of discussion about COVID policy and a whole range. And it turns out, I mean, I've learned from the academic, uh, uh, this conference, that there that many people felt that the, in, in their academic settings, the same kinds of dynamics that happened during COVID, where if you were against the lockdown, somehow you were, you were a fringe figure that deserved to be you know, marginalized and, and uh, you know, excommunicated. Uh, apparently, a lot of other people felt the same way on a whole range of other topics. And the Academic Freedom Conference at Stanford uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I mean, I think it was it was really important as a venue where people could openly discuss these issues uh, in the context where there were other prominent academic deans, people from the outside organizations that support academic freedom, um, and uh, even people who disagree about whether there is a problem at all were also present at the conference. Um, it was, I thought, a fat, fascinating, interesting, uh, revealing discussion uh, that, 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 that uh, I mean, for me, it felt I got to tell my story about what happened on campus to me. Uh, it was, it was, um, I don't know, for me, for me, it was, it was, it was a, uh, you know, signal moment in the, in the, uh, in, in the pandemic. Uh, you know, I guess I, I was also very, very happy to see so many people who obviously were like-minded in, in wanting to defend all of these, you know, deontological principles. But I guess one thing, not to be cynical, but one thing that, you know, I would have loved to see a different reality would have been that many people who are now involved in the in the fight for, for these important values, it's because they ultimately, the, the crocodile came for them, right? And therefore, they've now decided. And I'm happy that they've, they've decided to weigh in and throw their hat into the, the ring. But they only did so because now they realize that they are impacted by it. Whereas, again, being someone who's very purist in spirit, maybe maybe I'm too exacting in my personality. I have taken all of these positions for many, many years. At no, po at no point is it because somebody was targeting me. It's because I was pissed off that there were these violations of these fundamental principles. So what are your thoughts on this issue? I mean, do, do you not, are you just pragmatic that I don't care how people got to the, to the, to the arena, they're there, let's move on. Or would you want to implore people to get into the fight, even though it might not be personally affecting them? Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I should say, uh, of course, I, th I think uh, a little of both, actually. Uh, and, and just in all honesty, like before the pandemic, if you if you'd asked me, did I would did I support academic freedom? Of course, I would have said yes. And I, and I would have said it's a it's a, it's a fundamental liberal principle. Uh, universities can't function without it. The whole purpose of the university is to is to have those that kind of freedom so that controversial ideas can happen. I would have said all of that. Um, but in all in all honesty, before the pandemic, I never felt the pointy end of it. And I, I actually, frankly, I took it for granted, God. I never, I never thought that it was actually under threat um, until the pandemic. Um, so, uh, so I guess I would, I would take both positions that you just said, if I, if I can, maybe, maybe they're, if they're contradictory or not, I don't know. I, I, I do think it's good to have people who are, uh, who take this as an issue and, and fundamentally say, look, this is, this is something we should care about um, all the way through. Um, but, but, uh, and, and, and whether, whether they faced it or not. Right. I, I think that's absolutely a good a good thing, and there needs to be more of those folks. I think, uh, but at the same time, in order to actually assure academic freedom, we need a very broad coalition of people. Yeah. 
And I, I think I, I very much liked uh, the fact that the professors who were there at, at the Stanford Academic Freedom Conference, they really spanned the whole range of, of disciplines, right? You know, you had the astronomer and the astrophysicist, you've got the medicine guy, you've got the classics person, the German literature, the psychologist. And so I, I love the fact, I mean, even though obviously academic freedom affects everyone, irrespective of which uh, discipline they come from, the fact that we had that heterogeneity of disciplines, uh, you know, gave me some solace. Well, what about you? I uh, no, I, I, well, actually, solid, actually, it disturbed me, frankly. I didn't realize the, that the problem was so widespread across so many fields. Yeah. Um, but, but I did, I was struck also by the, by the political, uh, breath, right? There were people on the left there. There were some people on the right there, yeah. uh, at that conference, and they had very similar stories to tell in their, their own field. Um, off, you know, like there were chemists there. I, I, there were there were uh, evolutionary biologists there. There were there were uh, you know obviously doctors, health policy people um, there. There were there were uh, you know it, it was just it was striking to see how many people from so many different fields, so many different uh, points of view about life and about politics, come to the same conclusion that we are in a sad place, uh, a dangerous place in society when even academic environments that are devoted to the mission of uh, promoting these kinds of open conversations on difficult topics have, have failed to do so. What do you think is, so in, in, in the, in my, in my last book, The Parasitic Mind, I talk about the idea pathogens that were, you know, spawned on university campuses, then promulgated in every nook and cranny of society. And I offer then a mind vaccine against these idea pathogens. But from your perspective, why is it that within academia, uh, professors hold the 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 of course the incorrect and the fascist view that we should not be debating issues. We'll get to the COVID issues that you have faced in in a second, but more because as you said, this is not something that is only reserved for what happened with you and Scott Atlas and so on with COVID, right? I mean, I faced the exact same thing when I tried to Darwinize the business school and the behavioral sciences. What are you, some kind of quack scientist? Human human beings and consumers are not driven by biological impulses. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. What are you? talking about you're an idiot right so what is is it just the natural impulse to be tribal and therefore even academics who should be trained to look at the evidence somehow succumb to that trap is it is it as simple as that well i mean there there's certainly some element of that like there, there's uh there the, the natural inclination for societies uh through almost all of human history has been you know uh what at least this Hobbesian red and truth and claw kind of kind of a fight over I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to destroy you. Whoever has the most power wins. I think that's the normal standard kind of kind of uh, what's what's unique and different is uh, in an Enlightenment age that promotes discussion, civil discussion with sometimes fierce disagreement uh, without trying to destroy the other person. That's a that's a unique thing, and the the, the modern university has uh, has had that as its mission basically for for almost its entire existence to provide a clear space where uh, people who disagree with uh, the you know the powers that be could have a, a place that they could do that, right? I, disagree with each other. Yeah, I was going to say that I I think that. Uh some of the inability to weigh the evidence in academia stems from the fact that academics are human beings and therefore they adopt a set of 
sacred truths and, and ideological beliefs, and then they need to defend those at all costs. So let me take, an, again, an example from my own reality. Uh, you may or may not know uh, Richard Lewinton and uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who are trained evolutionists, right? So, so you, you don't have to sell them the idea of evolution, yet did not accept the principles of evolutionary psychology, which is simply the application of evolutionary principles to the study of the evolution no, of the I, human I, uh, mind. And, I and, read um, Hen's Teeth and Horses Toes when I was uh, when I was younger, and I also read Mismeasure of Man. I mean, I, I'm familiar with this debate. Exactly, and so and so, just to finish the point, and then I'll I'll cede the floor to you. And and yet, in their case, because they were avowed Marxists, and to the extent that they thought that somehow evolutionary psychology, as you know, as applied to human behavior, might be contrary to Marxist philosophy, then they suddenly hated evolutionary psychology. Not unlike Lysenkoism, right? And so, so I think ultimately, what happens is that academics, despite the fact that they should be unbiased and be truth seekers and so on, adopt certain ideological positions and. Screw truth if it conflicts with my ideological positions. You're for. I I mean I think uh uh like you just, just take uh, just take Stephen Say Jay Gould like right? in many ways an admirable thinker uh made I mean I think I'll, I'll, anyone would agree like tremendous contributions to evolutionary science um but I think on the topic you're talking about he absolutely let his politics get ahead of it absolutely I mean why shouldn't we discuss uh the evolutionaries origins of of human psychology why would human psychology not be subject to evolutionary pressure that just doesn't make doesn't make any sense um but you know that's fine he can have his view uh it, it, he, but but then there's then there are other thinkers who have who have uh, put forward ideas you know you you included god on on evolutionary psychology that's what a modern university is for you can have these fights in an intellectual space where everyone is respected uh, in in one sense, uh, what's what's unique and different is that uh, that people with power in the university have used that power to systematically exclude uh, other points of view that uh, disagree with them, with no with no uh, pushback from the the leadership of universities to 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 say, look. Uh, you can disagree, but you're not allowed to destroy. We have no power to excommunicate. That's the difference, right? So if you make uh, Stephen Jay Gould something I, I'm sure he would violently disagree, with, be unhappy with, you make him, um, you know, uh, the high pope of evolutionary biology with the power to excommunicate. Um, well, I mean that that's that's the problem here. Yeah. So um, in your, go. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, no, please go ahead. Uh, so okay, so let's. I want to drill down. Of course, your your unique trajectory in, in this battle of you know academic freedom is a is a very poignant one. So, COVID starts. You start seeing all sorts of policies being enacted, many of which are controversial, if not haphazard, if not you know random. So you decide to weigh in. Uh, I mean, both of course as a as a physician, but as, of equal importance as a thinker, as a as a as a PhD, as a researcher. Uh, you weigh in with no ideological biases. You don't care either way. You're simply saying, hey, wait a second. Policies A, B, and C don't seem to be supported by the science. You get together with a bunch of other folks. You co-author the great Barrington Declaration. Take it away from there. Tell us what happened and so on. Sure. So um, 
as you say, God, I, I mean, I, I entered this because it's this is my field. Like I write on infectious disease policy. If I don't write about COVID, what is the purpose of my career, my training, right? I just, I have to weigh in. Um, the very first thought I had when I saw the death rate estimates that the World Health Organization put out early on in the pandemic was, uh, was something like three, 4% mortality, case fatality rate, they called it, but was that there's no way that's that could be right. That's too high. And the reason is that uh, early in the pandemic, there were very few testing resources. We were finding people with COVID who were entered the hospital, but we had no capacity to find everyone else who'd had COVID who didn't enter the hospital. Um, I'd seen this before in the H1N1 pandemic, other pandemics is very similar. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, um, they're putting out this number that is panicking the entire world. And we've adopted this like draconian lockdown policy that's going to harm the poor, the vulnerable, the working class, guaranteed children. I knew that that for a fact. Uh, I mean, that's, that's just the nature of how societies work. If you uh, tell people that the, everyone else is a biohazard, society cannot function. Especially public health tells people that everyone else is a biohazard. Society cannot function. And it's the most vulnerable, the people who, who need human interactions the most that will suffer the most. Right, so those those are the two thoughts running through my head. We've overestimated the the fatality rate because of the selection problem, and we're underestimating the problems that are going to be caused to the poor, the vulnerable, the working class by the policies we've adopted. Um, and so I wrote an op-ed the first time in my life I'd ever written an op-ed uh, in the Wall Street Journal, essentially saying we don't know the infection fatality rate, we don't know how deadly the disease is, and we need to do a study to find how widespread the disease is. I mean, I, I did that, uh, you know, I think it was like March, 2020. That led to a whole bunch of, uh, I mean, a whole bunch of things happened. Like people start offering me resources to actually run that study. Because I was kind of hoping the CDC would run that study. I, I was kind of surprised that it fell to, fell to me um, to, to, to run it. But it's like, okay, so people offered me resources, resources meaning like it was like uh, the, the study we did in three weeks, it, it relatively cheaply, um, but the resources included like antibody test kits that uh, that, that were hard to come by, um, expertise for, for like um, organizing the, the logistics of, of, of getting 3,000 people to, to agree to give blood in the middle of a, of a lockdown order. Um, I mean, it was, it was, it all came together very quickly. We ran a study. Um, it's a, it's a, the, the technical term is zero prevalence, zero meaning blood prevalence, meaning how many people have it, uh, zero prevalence study. We found that 3% of the Santa Clara County, this is right around where I live, um, uh, population had antibodies to COVID on April, early, April 4th, 2020, 3%. Doesn't sound like a lot, um, but that actually is a big number because if that's true, then the disease is already too far gone. You can't really suppress it to zero. It's only a question of like, who do you protect uh, while the while the disease sort of works its way through the population? Um, we ran another version of the study in in, 20, in, in LA uh, County the next week. Um, and then the world exploded. I put out a version of the paper and everyone was convinced that I didn't know how to do math. I don't, I, I got everything wrong. It was obviously too, because the death rate we estimated was was 0.2%, 99.8% survival for a community sample, not, not including people in nursing homes. We weren't, we, we, we didn't get permission to go sample people in nursing homes. Um, so we had 0.2% instead of a three, four, 5% mortality. That's a very big difference. And then with this massive age gradient, right? In, mortal, in mortality risk, um, where older people are much more likely to get infected. 
we put the thing out as a scientific paper and it put me in the middle of a political maelstrom. Even on campus, there was a massive, uh, like there's this, this uh, essentially like an attempt to undermine me. People started uh, like the, people started like uh, talking to BuzzFeed authors who were doing hit pieces on my family. I started getting death threats, um, uh, accusations of like accepting money for even which I didn't accept. Uh, I took zero dollars for the study. Um, the money went to Stanford to help offset the cost of the 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 uh, the, the the various logistical aspects of the study um uh from from like uh you know millionaire uh millionaire people millionaire like airline owners somehow corrected me and making me change the results of the study for reasons I have no idea why I would do that um anyway so it was it was really nasty it was really nasty and the Stanford leadership instead of protecting my ability to do this this kind of work, actually undermined it god in ways that i sh that absolutely shocked me i, I for the, for this study i normally you know you know normally you're supposed to have human subjects oversight which we did we you're supposed to because you know you're if you're going to draw blood from people you know finger prick blood uh you need to protect the human subjects the people that are volunteering to do this so we went through the normal process for that and got approval stanford uh uh organized at a an oversight committee that was separate from the human subjects committee, an ad hoc committee that was populated by people that did not like the result of the study, viewed the death rate as a political number, and had conflicts of interest like, uh, like you know, they they were trying to use, uh, they were trying to develop another antibody test kit that was going to be a competitor to the one we used. Um, I mean, we weren't in the business of selling antibody test kits; we we're in the business of running a study. Um, anyways, they. They forced us to like uh, uh, redo, uh, like re redo the um, the the design of the study on the fly. Uh, the, I mean, it was it was remarkable. Like normally, you would never have interference in a in a, a professor running a study, but that's exactly what happened with the top of the, the university. So what? Sorry, let me stop you right there because there's so much to digest. So number one, uh, your estimate estimate back then of what the fatality rate was is in the order of a magnitude of 10 lower roughly is that correct yes okay and and now several years later what is the closest working number that we have it's it's much closer to what you estimated than what there is what, what is the final number yeah it's it's roughly in the range of what we found uh, it was you know there was now a hundred of these seroprevalence studies the war they've been done um uh there've been meta analyses of these which find roughly that we got a pretty close to the right answer um uh in april of 2022 it's it's probably less deadly now than it was then because of because because of there's more widespread immunity in the population um but from 2020 there are a, a very large number of seroprevalence studies pretty much found what exactly what we found okay, um, so, so at that point you're saying back then when when, it, when the whole you know drama started you're saying wait a second your your fatality rate is wrong here is what i think it is or what we think it is and it's much lower number two have a targeted you know approach in protecting people rather than a mass one because as an economist as thomas sowell explains to us as anybody with a brain would know there are trade-offs in life that's what life is therefore you can't be if to use the language of operations research you can't be maximizing the objective function looking at only one parameter there's a whole slew of parameters and that's what you're coming along and saying hey wait a second you know 
there's going to be downstream effects of having this massive lockdown. Th did I summarize that roughly correctly? Absolutely. That's that's the policy position I, I took out of the research that I was doing. Okay. Uh, so then, so then, what explains? Can we? So now I'm going to put on my psychologist, behavioral scientist hat on, and I want to try to understand the animus that was targeted at you. It, it might come, it might do to many different reasons. Do you have, even if it's speculative, do you have a sense of what are the motives and reasons that we can create a topology of why people were so anti what you're saying? Okay. So I, I think that you're absolutely right. It's complicated because there's, you know, humans are complicated. Um, I think, I think that one of the central things, like you've put yourself back in March of 2020 and put yourself in the shoes of the panic people had about the danger from COVID. Right. It felt like for many people, like it was, we're all going to die from exposure to this virus. Three, four percent doesn't sound like a big number if you look at it objectively, but it's still like, you know, do you, do you really want to draw out of an urn and four times out of 100 you die? I mean, no, no one wants that. Uh, so uh, you uh, so I think part of it is that we we in the West had felt like we conquered infectious diseases. You know, there was the AIDS epidemic, but that happened to somebody else, not me. Of course, it would never happen to me. I know I have control over that. Um, here's a new disease. And in the back of our like lizard brain is this fear of infectious diseases. And that I think that that explains a lot of the, the of, of what happened on campuses and actually over the last three years is this like reaction to this primal fear of infectious diseases that civilization had controlled for, for a centuries a century, but uh, but had come back with to a population that was utterly uh, 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 utterly exposed to the dangers of that fear. So the the fear module is is when when it is triggered within some acceptable range makes sense. You're saying here it is misfiring because it is going on hyperactive mode. That's basically yes. okay. and, and it's society wide, including leaders. Um, so I think that's one the one major reason why why, why we saw what we saw. Um, the second thing I think uh, on campus there's hubris at the center of a lot of the problems on campus. I mean you have on campus uh, tremendously accomplished people walking around with ideas about the way the world work that conflict with each other. That is just the nature of uh, you know major university. I mean you, as as you know, Gad. I mean it's just it's right. just. You're going to run into people that disagree with you that are very, very smart and think that you're stupid because you disagree with them, right. um, even though you're not stupid, right? Even though you may have good reasons for why you believe. Uh, and so what you had was uh, a, a lot of very smart people that were convinced that they knew a lot about the epidemiology of COVID even before the studies had been done to document that epidemiology. How does the disease spread? How deadly is it? Who's most vulnerable uh, to dying from COVID if they get infected? Uh, all of that is imp incredibly important for the epidemiology, for the policy. And people had strong opinions about that in the midst of this fear before any, any studies had been done to actually document any of it. In particular, like the effectiveness of lockdowns as a way to suppress the disease spread, that was taken as gospel, right? How do you stop the disease from spreading? Well, treat everyone as a biohazard. Keep everyone away from each other. Stop society from working, the disease will go away, right? That was the implied promise. Two weeks to flatten the curve was the, was the, was the stated promise. But in fact, the implied promise was just do this for a little while and the danger will go away. Right, so um, you had you had that overlay on campus of very smart people thinking things like that without actually scientific evidence to back it up, 
Um, and, and then finally, you also had an overlay of sort of professional jealousy, right? So this uh, ad hoc committee that the Stanford uh, leadership, Stanford Medicine leadership organized had on it uh, statisticians who wanted to be on the paper with us, even though they weren't weren't there at the beginning of the organizing the study, uh, they uh, or or that, that or that were like overseeing the paper for for reasons I don't really understand. Um, we didn't invite them on the study. The, it had uh, it, it had doctors who wanted to organize seroprevalence studies just like we we did. In fact, got millions of dollars from the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation to 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 run a seroprevalence study. That they eventually never ran. We we organized a study, ran it in three weeks for a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, if I was smart, I guess I would have asked for thirteen million dollars from the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation and run it and never run it again. Um, and so th that they people like that were on this committee, and then there were people who were trying to develop their own antibody test kits. Now we weren't trying to develop antibody test kits. The, the antibody test kits that I had were donated to me by a uh, a, a person who runs a lab that contracts with Major League Baseball. He read my op-ed, contacted me, sent me the, the test kits, sent us the test kits because he wanted to benefit science. He's like, I, I could use this for Major League Baseball, but I want I don't want to do that. I read your op-ed. I think this is critical information we need to have. I want to help you develop it. Uh, on the on this on this on this committee was a, a group of pathologists who were convinced that we were a threat to them because we were using an antibody test kit. They were trying to develop their own antibody test kit and sell it. Um, and they were overseeing. They were convinced that the kit we were using was crap. So some of it was just pure, good old fashioned seven deadly sins greed. Yeah. So it's it's so there's so there's a lot of like motivations I think underlying but, this. But so the second one where you're talking about you know that you know some of the other smart people who who held differing opinions to yours. What, so for example, let me contextualize it. Say in in some of the battles I have in my own fields, and then link it analogize to to your setting so let's say i say well of course consumers or humans in general are driven by you know biological forces that are shaped by evolutionary pathways of course our hormones affect our behavior and so on now if you are a social constructivist who believes that you know biology applies to every species other than one species called human beings then 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 my idea that consumers are biological beings is going to conflict with that perspective so i i know the genesis i know the root of why they are against me in your case what's the schism what's the professional schism between them saying lockdown is the way to go and you saying wait a second it's not the way to go what what's driving that schism um so the the main thing has to do with the right with the policy right so if the goal of the policy is suppression of the disease to zero uh you know either through vaccines or through lockdowns or other other policies the goal of the policy if that's the goal then i'm a danger right okay. my ideas are a danger because my ideas say, look, we don't have the capacity of technology to suppress it to zero. At best, what we can do is identify the vulnerable population and and uh, and work to protect that group. Turns out that it's mostly elderly people, older, older people that were the most vulnerable. If we'd done a much better job protecting older people, we would have had much less death from COVID. My ideas say, like, look, you have to account for both the harms and the benefits of the policies. Um, that you're implementing. So if the if closing schools harms children, it's not ethical to do that. It's not ethical to harm children. 
in order to to protect older people from a disease, and in, in fact, it's ineffective. It, you know, you, suppressing the lives of children did nothing to protect older people. It turns out in the long run. Um, and what we did, what it did do, was was demolish the life prospects of young people, of less people who are less vulnerable to COVID, but quite vulnerable to the harms and depredations of the lockdown policies. Right. So my 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 uh, my ideas then are a threat to the policy preferences that these people are convinced are the only way to manage this pandemic. But that um, that that their perspective is stemming from what? Is it is it a mathematical modeling approach that says based on my models I am right, Jay is wrong? What or is it a is it a, a, a revealed truth? Is it a sacred belief? What's causing what's causing the scientific schism between both of you so that you could each yeah. show your own evidence to either support your position or you know you see what i'm saying yeah so so like uh, uh i i think the, the the central problem is the is 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 a misapplication of the precautionary principle right right so put yourself in march 2020 we don't know a lot about the parameters of this disease we don't know how exactly how it spreads we don't really know how deadly it is uh we don't know uh we know we do know that there's this age gradient in mortality that that was pretty well known from very early on um, and uh, the question then is how should we how should we respond? A lot of the thinkers around this applied the precautionary principle. I think I misapplied the precautionary principle. I think in a situation like that, the precautionary principle entitles you to think the worst about the disease, consistent with the data that you have available. Right? It allows you to say, okay, this is going to be a disease that's going to cost uh, that's going to be three or four percent mortality, like the World Health Organization did. Um, but what it doesn't do is it permits you to assume the best about the countermeasures that you're taking to the disease, right? So the lockdowns, you can't assume they're going to work. You have to have some evidence they're going to work. And you have to apply your best reasoning around it. Can people who are poor, who have who need to work in order to feed their families, really afford to lock down for an extended period of time? Can you really separate moms from newborns? Can you really suppress children from going to school for, for years on end and not expect any harm? You can't assume the best of the policies you're implementing, and you can't assume that, that, that the policies won't have any harms. You have to apply the best possible evidence, even within the framework of the precautionary principle, to the countermeasures you're taking. A lot of the people who are arguing for lockdowns apply, just invoked the precautionary principle saying, look, millions of people are likely to die from this based on the limited evidence we have. Therefore, almost anything is justified. Right. Um, so and I think that was the crux of the intellectual debate going on at the time. It was a danger. My ideas were a danger because it basically said, look, you're not allowed to, uh, to apply the precautionary principle in this mis mis uh, the, the mistaken way. You actually have to apply it consistently, both to the harms of the disease and also to the countermeasures, the harms of the countermeasures you're taking. Um, and you are, if you're going to apply the precautionary principle for a policy, you have an ethical obligation to rapidly develop the evidence on, about whether the assumptions you're making are right or wrong. You can't just leave the uncertainty there forever, assuming the worst about the disease and the best about your countermeasures forever without actually honestly trying to evaluate whether the assumptions underlying the, the estimates are right. Um, a lot of, and you're right, the, like the, the modeling was used essentially with like, uh, you know, populated with parameters that were, were entirely unrealistic uh, with a model of how human societies actually work, completely unrealistic.
right? So the models often have these like at, at, at their base, this assumption that people just interact with each other randomly every once in a while. If you, if you happen to interact randomly with an infected person, you're going to get the disease or with some probability. All you have to do is stop the interactions and the disease will stop spreading. The models don't reflect how real the reality is in human societies. Elderly people are congregated in nursing homes. Their kids need to go see them. They, they need to they sometimes go to see grandparents. There's a hospital setting um, where people go when they're sick. Uh, there are schools. People interact with each other for lots and lots of reasons that are fundamental to who we are as humans. You can't just suppress that forever uh, and and expect expect it to, to to for people to not to try to like get around that. Uh, there's going to be lockdown fatigue. None of that was built in any of these models. You know, it's it's, inter had... it's interesting that as a health economist, you're you're critiquing the descriptive validity of you know the the other models because typically in my field it's the so so I I come from the tradition of behavioral decision making with you know the Kahneman and Tversky gang whereby yeah. you know there is a tension between normative decision making and prescriptive decision making and descriptive decision making and we typically look at the economists as the ones who are navigating in la la land right I mean that's the whole point of Kahneman and Tversky is that they demonstrated that you know Homo economicus is an incorrect view of how humans make decisions and yet here you are the economist who's saying that the other modelers are engaging in la-la land thinking right i mean society and people are complicated god as, we, as i mean this is just it's gonna we're gonna get it everyone's gonna get it wrong right and so we just have to sit here arguing with each other in good faith and we learn from each other eventually we'll start to learn something this is something i've learned if i was a health economist I mean, this is my bread and butter. It's like societies are complicated. There's the, there's something called social determinants of health, meaning poor people sure. have very limited uh, uh, resources to like devote to their health. Uh, societies very often make it difficult to, to have good health if you're poor. Um, I mean, that's like a basic thing. I thought everyone in everyone in health, in health policy knew, and yet we threw that away during the pandemic. I mean, it's not even something, you know, I mean, this is like the most basic thing I thought everybody agreed on. Right. Don't make the lives of poor people worse. Right. Uh, don't. And, and and that was obviously what the lockdowns were going to do. And all these like all these like mathematics, they just they use math to blow over the fact that they know nothing about how society functions. <laughs> well, that but by the way, of course, as you know, this. There, there's a big schism within economics, whereby it has become so mathematical. Uh, I've argued, uh, I mean, not facetiously that, and I mean, I think others have made the same point that the reason why that, you know, economics became so mathematical in a sense is because it suffers from the old physics envy, right? Not to get too psychoanalytical, mm. right? So if there's a lot of Greek letters, then it must be serious if it's quite right. Whereas in many cases, you don't need all of that mathematical stuff. I mean, Thomas Sowell was able to say some really important things about all sorts of really important phenomena. And I don't think there's a single mathematical equation there. And it's not as though I'm afraid of mathematical equations. My background is in mathematics, right? So again, I think there is a schism here between creating these normal normative stylized models that may be fully decoupled from reality and to say, no, no, I want to really understand what happens in the consumer's mind. I don't care about homo economicus. So I think that, that schism that I face within behavioral decision theory and economics is exactly what you faced with your colleagues and in, in, in dealing with the COVID policies. I mean, I think, you know, Matt, I, I, I love math. I think it's really interesting. I mean, you know, Tversky, I think he was a, he was actually a first class, I mean, he used mathematics in a very powerful way oh, yeah. in his writings. Um, um, and, I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with using math to clarify your thinking. 
But I do think there's something wrong with using math to snow over really important realities. Right. Um, right? So if, like, if, if I could write this down mathematically, I, I'd be very perfectly happy to do that. But that's a, it's a re, the reality is more important than the mathematics. Right. And the reality is society is incredibly unequal. A, a lockdown policy is going to have, at its, as it, at its pointy end, uh, destruction of the poor, of the of the of the of the uh, of, 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 of of children of vulnerable people. Those are the ones who do rely most on society functioning properly. Actually, um, that's just a, a lesson that I thought every economist or every every social scientist knew. Um, apparently not, especially have, when fear takes over your brain. Has has have any detractors of yours? come around either publicly or privately and said, you know, in retrospect, I think you were right on X, Y, Z. And the reason I ask this is because it speaks to, you know, what we discussed in a sense at the Academic Freedom Conference, having epistemic humility, being open as a scientist to incoming information that might move you away from your anchored position. Have you, have you gotten a lot of those or have people been fully dogmatic and rigid? Once they take a position, they never budge from it. No, actually, 2022 has been pretty good that way. There have been people that have apologized uh, oh, nice. publicly. Uh, I mean, it's just been, actually just touched me. Um, like some people, some many people privately uh, have come around and told me this. Um, I, the, the 2020 and 2021, every time I wrote an op-ed, every time I appeared on TV, every time I wrote a scientific paper, there'd be like a litany of like, you know, slander, smearing, death threats. Uh, we like just, it was just really stressful, God. Um, 2022 has been very, very different. Um, people have started to come, I think, come around. Uh, there's still people, like friends of mine, who betrayed me. Uh, there, there are like, uh, I mean, betrayed like, you know, like I, I, <laughs> this is amazing. But like, I found there was a these FOIA documents, FOIA Freedom Information Act um, documents, where people uh, like wrote to Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, right. friends of mine, who I'd worked with, uh, accusing me of not doing not not being an epidemiologist or not knowing how to do epidemiology even though i've published dozens of papers in epidemiological wow. journals over the last last over decades i've been on phd dissertation committees of epidemiologists uh along with the person who wrote the letter uh email to francis collins accusing me of not knowing how to do epidemiology I mean, just the whole thing is just so there, there's there are people like that who betrayed me that that i have to i have to find it in my heart somehow to forgive i mean i just have to i just have to i can't have that sitting over my head i just have wow. to get move move on um uh that haven't really apologized i don't i mean i don't really need apologies i don't i, don't, I mean I, what i what i really want at this point gad is i want reform right i want reform of public health so that it no longer has the power it has without some kind of check and balance that it represents the the interests of the poor the vulnerable much better than it currently does i want reform so that that it respects the civil liberties of other people better. I want reform of, of academic institutions so that it, we bring back standards of academic freedom that I, frankly, as we talked at the beginning of the thing, I frankly took for granted before the pandemic. Right. Um, but now I see I was wrong to do so. Do you, um, do you feel that those objectives that you just mentioned, not, not that I wish this to be political, but do you feel that one political camp or the other in the, in the context of the US, I'm in Canada, is one more open to those objectives than the other? Or do you think that you'll have equal listeners and or detractors in both camps in equal measure? Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I've tried so hard, Guy, to not be political. And, and if you look at the lockdowns, it's it's not, it's weirdly, 
cuts across in strange ways across political lines. Uh, I think President Trump was the uh, the the uh, ultimately the person who implemented lockdowns in the United States, right on the right. You had Boris Johnson on the right implementing lockdowns. You had on the left in Sweden, it was the left Social Democrats right. who were opposed the lockdowns. Same time, you have to be honest. It is it is it has been the Democratic Party that has pushed lockdowns, that has pushed against academic freedom around lockdown discussions in, on campuses. That it has, in many ways, has been the central problem in having an open discussion about lockdowns, having uh, honest policy measures, honest discussions around the policy measures uh, and effectiveness of them, the destructiveness of them. Uh, it's been the Democratic Party in the United States that has been part of that. And uh, just to give you some evidence on that. Um, I've had uh, numerous Republican uh, legislators reach out to me and uh, uh, to testify in Congress and elsewhere, trying to get my advice. Uh, governor DeSantis, a governor of Florida, of course, is a Republican that that I think took much of my advice, um, you know, through through parts of the pandemic. Um, whereas I haven't have had much more difficulty having any sway with with Democratic leaders. I, I want that to change. I don't care. Sure. I, I'm a public health person. I don't. I, of course, I have a politics, but they're not. It's not central to who I am. What's central to who I am is like what evidence, what the evidence says. Uh, I don't. I'm willing to throw my politics away if I can reach people uh, with with the evidence. I'm frankly willing to throw my own politics away if my evidence says I should do so. Nice. I, 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 so I just, I just don't. I think um, in public health, it's not. While I do agree, I think it's going to take politics to get to the reform that I want. In, in principle, with public health, it should not be political. It, sh it should be something where 95% of the population agrees with you just because you're trustworthy. Right. Um, it's not it's not enough to get 50% plus one. So while I, I think in the short run, we're going to need some political action, I, what I want to do is build a coalition that cuts across po political sure. lines so that in the long run, public health can be healthy. So do you think that it, the, 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 the statements that you said about the Democrats, is it driven by the fact that they are much more likely to support, you know, centralized government, collectivist thinking, you know, govern me harder, daddy, right? So, so, so from that perspective, then you, th there is an ideological penchant for the Democrats to be more likely to be for lockdowns. Don't worry, we're the government, we take care of you, you know, uh, hand over control to us we know what's best for you is that what's driving the difference between the two parties is it ultimately what i just said yeah i, I there's there's so, definitely some element of that uh i mean i think the democratic party i i, I think like maybe that maybe that's true like in the like toward the beginning of the pandemic through 2020 uh, what's happened now though i think is that the destructiveness of the policies the school closures the business closures uh, all of those the 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 schism over masks uh i mean all of these the vaccine mandates that led to the to, to so many people losing their jobs for absolutely no reason since the vaccine doesn't stop disease transmission um all of these policies have been have tr tremendously damaged s many people who were previously democrats right um and they're you're stuck in this like policy hysteresis where like if they if they admit that they did wrong, there's going to be a fury launched against them against people who normally would be sympathetic to them, and so they're trying their best to like keep keep this down, um, without without uh, and 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 I, I mean, and I think within the Democratic Party itself, there's been this like fight between um, people who who were like closer to the Great Barrington Declaration and people who were who were like 
fully in the zero COVID camp, um, you know, or, or something in between. And uh, that fight has basically not been allowed to happen in the open inside the Democratic camp. And then you have, of course, the Republicans that have been, uh, you know, Trump authored the lockdowns. He's still claiming he saved 2 million people in, you know, March of 2020 by by the lockdowns uh, with no evidence. Um other than those horrible models that did that don't that that, that are that have, been, that have gotten everything wrong, um, uh, so you have like within the the Republican Party, there's like the Trump people who are like who are uneasy with the lockdowns, but then they also have to, have to say, look, there was there was it, you know Trump instituted them, he's still defending them to some extent, um, and uh, of course, and then of course there's the DeSantis folks who are like, look, the lockdowns were a mistake. The policies that we follow, the policies that Sweden followed were much, much better. It led to much broad, broadly, if you take health much more broadly, a much better set of outcomes for our populations. Um, the, the politics within both parties is funny around this. Um, and so you have to, I don't know, I'm not sure exactly, I, I'm not a politician guy. I don't, I don't know much. Frankly, I've gotten, I got what, like t- nine of the last nine presidential can- uh, presidential elections wrong. I guessed wrong who's going to win. <laughs> I just am really bad at politics. Um, but I, but I, what I do think is that um, both, both parties have to come to terms with it. The Democratic Party has been much more lockstep on the lockdowns. And I think it's much more dangerous to them to admit that they were a mistake, a tragic catastrophic mistake than it is for the Republican Party, which I think has a lot more space to do that uh, safely. Got you. Two two last questions on COVID. Then there's a few other things I'd really like to get to. So uh, one is general, one is more personal on on COVID. So in in chapter seven of The Parasitic Mind, I talk about the chapter is titled How to Seek Truth. And and so I I discuss a, a truly, if I may say, powerful uh, epistemological tool that we can use in arriving at truth uh, called nomological networks of cumulative evidence. And so it's a mouthful. Let me break it down and see if we can apply that to the, you know, is Jay right or are the other folks right? So so if I want to demonstrate that a particular position is an adaptation, you know, uh, toy preferences are sex specific for biological reasons. It's not due to social construction. How would I build a nomological network to unequivocally demonstrate that that is true, Jay? Well, I can get you data from across cultures that supports that. I can get you data through across time periods that supports that. I can get you data through across species. I can get you vervet monkeys and rhesus monkeys and chimpanzees demonstrating that they exhibit the same sex specificity in toy preferences. I can get you data from pediatric endocrinology whereby little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia will have a reversal because that masculinizes them. So they will have a reversal of their toy preferences. So bit by bit, what I'm doing, Jay, is I'm building this incredible network of nomological network of cumulative evidence coming from, you know, imagine a triangulation of methods, but on steroids. It's it's much more than a literature review. And it's not just a meta-analysis. A meta-analysis is much more stay in your lane, right? What is the relationship between alcohol consumption and asthma? And that's it. Here, I'm getting you from across cultures, across time periods, across species. Once I put it all together, I have really built a next to airtight you know, framework that, you know, good luck to the person who wants to take me on in a debate if I've done my homework properly and I've built that nomological network. So is there something akin to what I just said 
that we could apply that says, okay, there's the J camp, don't go on lockdown, whatever. There is the let's lock down until there is zero COVID. Let's apply now this nomological network approach that could definitively, unequivocally tell us who's right. It, is that conceivably possible to do? Uh, so let me let me preface. I think the answer is yes, but let me preface the yes with uh, like a shock that I've had through the pandemic, which is that so many people seem utterly immune to data. <laughs> so true. Data till you're blue in the face, and it doesn't seem to move people, uh, which has been surprising. I mean, like I've lived in a world with, of data for my entire life, really, right. and that's the coin of the realm. Da like data, I don't mean data of just random numbers. I mean, like, you know, uh, uh, systematically collected, scientifically grounded, uh, hypothesis-driven data that 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 addresses that that addresses the you know uh, uh, different hypotheses that helps distinguish between different experiments things like that. Um, that's what I mean by data. Uh, and I what I found through the pandemic is like it almost doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can write. You can do a fantastic study. Uh, my my colleague Johnny Needy's here at Stanford is one of the, the most highly cited scientists in the world. He uh, he's been he's published seventy papers during the pandemic on COVID, um, and you know like every time I read it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to change my mind about something. Like he he uh, he did this like pretty great meta analysis on on the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine. I mean, I looked at some early evidence on this. I thought maybe it might work. I know I can't tell. We need good randomized studies. And then I read John's meta analysis where the randomized studies that did exist, and it's convinced me it doesn't work. Right. So you. you I would have thought that academics, especially doctors, uh, would would respond to these kinds of data. But what I've seen is that there's not, there's just, it just doesn't seem to, it doesn't matter. People are so blocked into the, I mean, academics are so locked into their position that they will not change their minds. Um, even if things come out to contradict what they what they thought, like good, good solid evidence comes out to, to contradict what they thought. So what you're saying is if you build that nomological network, it might be for not because I'm going la la la, I don't want to hear it. Right. Okay. Gotcha. I think that that I think that I've seen that and which is really depressing. I'm sure I, I mean it's I'm sure it's depressing to you. I mean it's depressing to me. Um okay, but let me just answer your the question in the spirit you meant it. I think there absolutely is this nomological network. And you can do it on, let's divide the question into two. Uh, one, did the lockdowns work to actually suppress the disease? Uh, so I have a study where we looked at, uh, at, at for early in the pandemic, we looked at subnational data from countries that implemented shelter in place orders and business closures versus countries which which like Sweden and South Korea, which didn't. And we just looked to see, did the disease spread more rapidly in those countries that did not impose those shelter in place orders? Um, you know, there's a there's a there's a schism in this literature, like the literature that 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 that, that this study I'm talking about fits in is comparing real world implementation of, of the policies. And you, you know, there's a science around that to try to like make sure you've matched correctly and all that. Um, you know, there's this because it's more complicated than I'm just saying right now. Um that part of the literature, including my study, tends to find that the lockdowns didn't have any effect. Why? Because poor people can't comply with lockdowns for very long. It's not physically possible. Like the 30 richest neighborhoods in Toronto had almost no spread of the disease early in the pandemic. The 30 poorest neighbors in Toronto had a huge spread of the disease, even during a lockdown, the severe lockdown in Ontario. 
Um, so that literature finds no effect. And it's it's a pretty broad literature from lots of different countries uh, with many different methodologies to try to like, because, you know, like it's a complicated thing. It's not a randomized trial. So you're going to, you're looking at data that's noisy. There's a, the, 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 that, that, that kind of, that's part of the literature finds a big effect. The, 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 the schism is that there's another part of the literature that takes, you have to ask a counterfactual question. What would have happened if we had not adopted a lockdown? That the, the part of the literature I'm talking about, just talking about right now, uses other countries, other places, other zip codes or whatever as to try to try to do that natural experiment, natural experiment. The other part of the literature uses models to answer that counterfactual. The same models that predicted that there would be tremendous uh, 2 million deaths in the US if we didn't lock down within a month uh, of March of 2020, those models uh, to answer the counterfactual. The same models that vastly overpredicted the deaths in Sweden, if, unless they locked down, of course, Sweden didn't lock down and they still didn't have the, the vast deaths predicted by the models. Um, those models are then used to, to infer how many lives are saved by the lockdown. So that's the schism in the literature. Uh, I think that that model-based counterfactual answering is just is, is bunk. So in the nomological framework that you're talking about, that's the counter evidence. Um, the real world evidence is that the lockdowns didn't work. And we have a good reason for that. We have a good theoretical reason for that, which is that societies are unequal. You can't con con you can't expect everyone to have a, a safe home, a safe job that isn't threatened by the lockdown so that you can comply with it forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Zoom economy, right? The, the ones who could phone it in by Zoom are likely yeah. to be in the higher socioeconomic groups. The ones who have to go out there into the field can't afford to be on Zoom all day. Yeah, and I'll give you a piece of evidence around that. Like why, and, and it has to do with a question. Why did we not lock down in 2009 during the H1N1 epidemic? It's because Zoom didn't exist. Yeah, right. right. Right, Zoom essentially enabled the lockdown. Zoom might even have caused the lockdown, actually, because you had the ruling class of, 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 of laptop class folks not inconveniences so much by, by because they didn't lose their jobs. Um, whereas the working class were pretty much you know they, they, their their lives and livelihoods were threatened unless they went out to work got it um, Sorry, so yeah so, so there's there's that question then the second question which is the damage done by the lockdowns to 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 to, to, to health and well-being of populations and there the evidence is just tremendous and uh, you know you have this like these, this evidence on learning loss on children for instance even the new york times had to report it where sweden has no learning loss for their kids um, you have well, increase of anxiety, increase of, uh, you know, uh, alcoholic addiction, increase in suicide, uh, depression. Th these are the downstream effects that you're using that those very deferring data to build that nomological network. Am I getting that right? Absolutely. Uh, so that's the, the psychological health of populations have been tremendously damaged, especially, especially children or young people in June of 2020 or July of 2020. The CDC released a survey suggesting that one in four young adults had seriously considered suicide. Wow. One in four had suicidality, which is like, you know, like normally that number is like four or five percent, not 25 percent. Wow. Um, uh, and you, we're seeing like that. That's in country after country that impose lockdowns are finding similar numbers to this. Suicides actually didn't I don't think went up in 2020, but they started to go up in 2021. And now we're seeing a, more of them now, especially in young people. Um, uh, drug overdoses. Alcohol overdoses, alcohol alcohol poisoning, um, you know, a, a vehicle, actually, this is a funny thing. There was a huge decrease in vehicle traffic in 2020 in the United States. 
but actually deaths from ve- from motor vehicle accidents went up in 2020. Is it what? People are driving more recklessly? Yeah, so people you- drive more recklessly. I mean, it's like su- de- suicide by by, uh, by, by, car. by car, right? Wow. Um, I mean, so it's just there's there's just like all these like measures of the psychological. And then, of course, is the physical well-being, right? So we told people to stay home uh, and stay safe. It's no surprise that obesity rates in children have gone up. Uh, it's no surprise that uh, that that uh, that that like you know it was just a report out of Europe that there were a hundred million missed screenings of cancer. Wow! And one million cases of cancer that should have been picked up in 2020 that they're, they're starting to see now. We're going to have this long tail of 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 like health conditions that should have been managed by standard normal medical care that was put off because of the because of the fear of the lockdowns fear in the lockdowns so that so that's probably because uh, to go back to the earlier point i made when they're developing the objective function of what to maximize or minimize they are looking at it as a singular variable a min, you know minimized number of deaths and then there's nothing else there is no subject to or it's a multiple objective function multiple attribute objective so so it really is in a sense a a, a combination of the the psychology of not being able to look beyond one cause and not understanding operations research modeling, but then you would think the modelers would know these things, no? The models are so simple. I mean, they're just like ridiculously simplistic is the right word I'm looking for. It's simplistic. They just, it's like they don't understand that they don't, they're not reality. They're just aspects of reality. In fact, the reality, because the lockdown affected basically every human on every, every person on earth was affected, especially poor people. Just to give you another another data point, I, I could go on on this forever because it's it's so it's ridiculous how complicated what the effects these had. Um, all through 2020, the UN was 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 yelling as loud as it could that the lockdowns were going to cause poverty and starvation in in, in the poor parts of the world. Right, we. Uh, we had we we'd globalized our world economy over the last 30, 30, 40 years. What that meant is like countries joining the WTO, reorganizing their economy so they fit into the West. Um, and that what that meant is uh, you know it, it lifted a billion people out of poverty over the last thirty years, a huge huge boon for humanity. Um, the lockdowns broke the supply chains, broke the promises that the West had made to the poor parts of the world. And the pointy end of that was. A hundred million people thrown into dire poverty, less than two dollars a day of income or less. And the UN was saying this. The world, the world health, the, the what is the uh, the uh, the World Bank was saying this all through the pandemic. Um, there, but then there was also the the warning that there would come with it starvation. Right. They use the word food insecurity. Eighty million was the original. Uh, no, one hundred thirty million would would was the original estimate. I don't think we got quite that many, but we got millions of people thrown into dire food insecurity. They don't know where the next meal is going to come from. In March of 2021, the UN estimated that 230,000 children had died from starvation in South Asia alone because of the lockdown, the economic dislocation caused by the lockdown. When you disrupt economies, it's the poorest of the poor who face the harm from that. Wow. And that's exactly what we've seen. Um, so in terms of just in terms of lives, like even if we just do this unidimensional uh, measure of lives, uh, it is almost it is not almost it is certain that the lockdowns resulted in the deaths of more people than were saved by COVID, which I think if I had to take a first order answer to that, it'd be zero were saved by COVID from these lockdowns.
Wow. Okay. Question two. Thank you. That was a very expansive answer. So I appreciate that. Uh, question two, I said that I would talk about COVID and, uh, on a personal level, then move on to something else. Uh, so about a, a month and a half ago, I put out what I thought was an innocuous tweet. I don't remember the exact wording, but I said something like, despite having had four vaccinations, uh, I'm, I'm now reporting that the whole sad family has succumbed to, I mean, not succumbed, we didn't die, we we got COVID. And, and interestingly, about three or four days earlier, we were heading off the whole family to get some Peruvian chicken. And I, I told in a in a very presumptu presumptive, uh, presumptuous way, I looked at my family and said, you know, I think we must be immune to COVID because we none of us ever, and I mean, literally three days later, son got it, then I got it, then my wife got it, then my daughter got it. So, so my tweet was basically, despite the four jabs, we got COVID. And so I can appreciate the, the hate you must have received, Jay, because of course you took much more controversial positions than that one tweet, but I received hate from both camps. So I received hate from the people who were angry that I used the word despite four jabs, meaning <laughs> that I was... I was uh, questioning the validity, the veracity of having been jabbed, and what kind of academic, what kind of professor am I to put such a word? I'm, a, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to kill grandma. And then, of course, there was much greater people, number of people who hated me. They said, you know, I looked up to you as one of the great intellectuals of our time, and I read Parasitic Mind, but it turns out you are the most parasitized imbecile in the world. You fell prey to the four vaccines. So it didn't matter what I had done. <laughs> Both sides hated oh, God. me. Nobody wished me a quick recovery. All <laughs> thought I was an absolute abject fraud and, and an idiot. So... Here's my question. I've got a physician who's an epidemiologist, who's a health economist. Bottom line, is it good to get the vaccines or not? Uh, okay, I'm going to answer that. But I should say one thing about getting COVID and dying. Uh, I guarantee every listener that's that's hearing this will both get COVID and die. It's just there's likely to be time in between those, right. hopefully a lot of time. Um, right. Uh, so th there's no technology to stop us from getting COVID. That's just a fact. The vaccines do not prevent you from getting COVID. Uh, I, I had the same experience as you. I actually had two doses of the vaccine in, in April of 2021. And in August of 2021, I got COVID. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, and, you know, I've managed to, I'm still here, you guys. So yeah. to, you know, so, so it's all good. You're um, not a hologram. You're still here. You're still alive. <laughs> okay. okay. A disembodied brain in a vat. Um, uh, yeah, so I, th I think um, the vaccines do not stop you from getting COVID. That's that's a that's a fundamental fact, actually, because with the the premise of these vaccine mandates and these coercive policies is that uh, if you're not vaccinated, you're dangerous. That's just not true, right? You can if you've had co uh, if you had COVID and recovered, you actually have pretty good immunity against uh, uh, against getting it again, uh, at least until there's a new variant, and also against severe disease on reinfection. Even if there's even if there's a new variant, right? So um, the fact that such a large fraction of the population has had COVID already, even the vaccinated, um, means that we're in a very different place than we were in, 20, in 2020, right? Where the, the whole population is immune naive. So the vaccine then can't be used to stop the disease from spreading. It just doesn't do that, and it's just you know it's just that's impossible to to to. And so like those detractors of yours that are saying that you're irresponsible for discouraging and you're going to discourage people from getting the vaccine. They don't understand the literature. They don't understand the scientific data. 
The vaccine doesn't stop people from getting it. Stop, stop moralizing this thing when it's no, there's no moralization to be had around the data around this, right? It's a, it's a, so in that case, then the vaccine is simply a personal medical decision based on your personal medical circumstances. And so then I think I'd say like, look, let's look at the, the harms and benefits of it, right? So if you're an older person, uh, my mom got the vaccine in March of 2021. I was actually quite relieved because the vaccine actually does reduce the risk of severe disease and death from getting COVID. Now, we don't know this from the randomized trials, but we, I think we know this from the epidemiological data that come out since the, 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 the randomized trials. It seems to induce not, not some reaction that will prevent you from getting COVID, but reduce the overreaction from infection from COVID if you do get infected, which you will eventually. Right. Um, and for older people, that's a really... Potential older means people. what? Well, let's say every is it's a continuous function, but like say seven in twenty twenty, every seven years of age doubled the infection fatality rate. Okay. So you know, like I was fifty, I was fifty two in in uh, uh, twenty twenty one when I got the vaccine before, and my infection fatality rate was roughly 0. 0.2. So fifty nine year olds would be 0. 0.4, uh, sixty six year olds would be 0. 0.8. You know, seventy-three ah. year olds would be you know one you know one one point six and so on. It goes up pretty fast, right? And then it, uh, the other direction, it goes goes down really fast too. So, like for children, is minuscule risk. Um, uh, so there's no hard cutoff. But let's say take an eighty-year-old. Uh, you reduce the mortality risk from you know three four percent from getting COVID to 0.3 percent, which is a pretty substantial improvement, I think. So it's totally. I think it's. I recommended getting the vaccine for older people for that reason. This vaccine does have some risks. We don't know all of them because usually it takes a while for using a vaccine to, to, to figure out what, what all of them are, right? So for instance, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, there was this risk of clotting that led right. to the stopping of it, right? Uh, there's worry about that with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, with, the, with the mRNA vaccines, there, there's a well-established risk of myocarditis, maybe one in 2,000, one in 3,000 risk of myocarditis, especially for young men who take the vaccine. What's the, without... Uh getting too technical on us, what, what's the proximate mechanisms that yield that outcome? Do we, do we know it? We don't know for certain. I mean, there's, I, I, I've, I've seen people who claim that it's like uh, a sort of floating spike protein sticking in your, in places where it shouldn't stick, but it also could be the liquid nanoparticles that, that house the mRNA that, 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 that are moving around that in, in, in depositing places that, they, that doesn't belong, cause inflammation. It's not clear to me from the literature and i'm not an expert in this i'm willing why to would it be sex specific why would it be okay young i can understand for whatever reason obviously well actually i would, I would have thought maybe the opposite it would be the older people who get it but okay whatever but why young men would not women I don't, I don't think we know i don't think okay. we know why it's young men in particular um i mean it, it obviously has to some you know like it looks like it affects athletes more so it could be to do with the the kind of heart muscle uh, you know, there, there are, there are differences, on uh, uh, you know, at, by, based on like, you know, how athletic you are, you know, obviously on sex as well, um, that determine that. So I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have a full answer and I don't, I don't know. I'd love to, this is something I'd love to learn about. Um, but what I do know is that the, the epidemiological evidence is unequivocal on this point about who's at risk for the myocarditis and it's everybody, but like really the highest risk is young men. And is it is it that you have a window at which by which time the side effect must happen? But if it hasn't happened, that means I've cleared that window and I'm good to go. 
Yeah, I think it's likely within the first month. First couple of weeks, exactly. Yeah, okay. first few weeks. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the, you know, it's harder to answer the longer term side effects just because, you know, the vaccine's only been around for two years. Um, and so we don't, you know, like, and typically with vaccines, most of the war, uh, side effects, even the worst side effects happen, you know, within weeks of, of getting the vaccine. Got you. Okay. Uh, are we still, we're still okay on time, right? Because I'm, yeah, I'm, enjoying, I'm, doing, this, I'm, doing fine. I'm, I'm is, enjoying this so much. You, you, yeah, me too. Actually, it's been it's fun to talk with you, Scott. I mean, oh. I, I mean, I've followed you for a long time, actually. Oh, you're lovely. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, so, so I, I, I mean, so like, okay, so let me just put it all together, put all the pieces together. Um, uh, for older people, I think it's worth the risk because you get this reduction in the mortality rate. Um, from getting the vaccine. That's what I argued. I wrote in December of 2020 that we should use the vaccine with, with Sunetra Gupta in the Wall Street Journal. We wrote an op-ed saying we should use the vaccine for focused protection of older people. Right. Uh, now, I can't guarantee there's no side effects. We don't know, right? Especially in December 2020 when we had such little limited use of the vaccine. But it looked like it was likely to protect against this bad outcome. So it's on net prudential to, to recommend it. For young people, the risk you're protecting against is small. The mortality risk of COVID is small, especially for children. And there are these unknown risk factors, risk, risks of taking the vaccine. I don't think, based on the epidemiological evidence, it's like widespread. So I don't think we're, like I've seen people say we're killing lots of people with the vaccine. I don't think that's right. But prudentially, why recommend a vaccine that doesn't really benefit a, a, you know, a certain group, you know, young people, um, and may have some harm. It just doesn't make any sense to recommend it in that case. And in terms uh, of the, no, I'm sorry, go finish your point. No, no. So that's so that's the answer to your question. Like I think for older people, it's a good idea. For younger people, it's not. Um, I think what happened was that the vaccine is that people thought about the vaccine in a way that really can't it, it can't actually work, right? They thought they like you know like you saw Tony Fauci saying 80 percent of the population should get this, and then the disease essentially what what would stop. They wanted to use the vaccine for herd immunity, but you can't use a vaccine that doesn't stop transmission for that kind of herd immunity. Um, so the, they were, are, are, uh, they, they, so it led to like tremendous policy mistakes. The pressure to vaccinate everyone led to uh, these vaccine mandates, which have then, I think, caused a counter reaction where people distrust all vaccine. There's like a, like the, the anti-vax movement is as large as I've ever seen it. Um, and in part because public health essentially oversold the vaccine and people lost their jobs as a result of that overselling. Yeah. They no longer trust public health at all. And I don't blame them. Um, so, so you have this like situation where like we could have used the vaccine for focused protection of older people that would have maintained and, and, you know, voluntarily, like if someone doesn't want to take the vaccine, then it's up to them. It's their own personal medical decision. Take, I'd say, go get good advice from your doctor about it. Um, or we could have used the vaccine to try to get to herd immunity and force the entire population to take it, even if they didn't want to take it, and then still fail to get herd immunity because the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. Um, we chose the latter, right? right? And that's the that's really the fundamental problem. Is is it also a question? I mean, that the uh, forgive me if this is uh, incorrect. What I'm allowed to say, you'll correct me. But uh, I mean, when you think typically, when the a layperson thinks of a vaccine you take the vaccine, it does stop you from getting the disease and it does stop the spread. And I think when this vaccine was first pushed on people, 
that was the official position, right? I mean, I, I remember very clearly seeing people saying that. Then that story, you know, the goalposts were moved to say, no, 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 we never said that it's going to stop the spread or you getting it. We simply said that it reduces the likelihood that you'll end up in the hospital. Well, if that's true, and let's let's suppose that the data does support that, then is the term vaccine the incorrect one? It's a therapeutic. It, it it mitigates the severity of your disease, but then let's not call it a vaccine. W would it be true for me to say, if it is that, then it's not a vaccine? I, I don't like to get into these terminological fights. I, I understand why people do, because the power of the word vaccine is enormous, right? Uh, so like, and the traditional childhood vaccines tend to have that neutralizing effect. Exactly. Right? So you've had the vaccine for for measles you're not going to get measles you're just not and it's pretty pretty much lifetime right um you're you're gonna it's and so like people are used to thinking about the vaccines that way because the ones that are in common widespread use in child for childhood have that feature right if you uh if you have uh, uh but on the other hand there are vaccines in use that don't have that feature mm. a good example is the flu vaccine right the efficacy of the flu vaccine in a typical season could range from anywhere from 10% to 80%, uh, often like much less uh, than, you know, much in the, toward the lower end of the range, like, you know, 20, 30%, meaning that you get the flu vaccine, you're still going to get the flu. Um, that's typical, actually, because we sometimes guess wrong about what strain of the flu is going to happen. So yeah. the vaccine is not matched to the flu that actually circulates. Um, and also, even if you guess right, you can still get the flu. Um, so there are both examples of that of vaccines that are sterilizing vaccines that are not in common use. Um, I I generally think that it's okay to call it a vaccine even if it doesn't sterilize, um, because like the, to me a vaccine is something that induces in your body that trains your immune system to react to exposure to a pathogen a certain way. You know, hopefully beneficial and that's what this thing does it, that's it's supposed to train your body so it's in that sense it meets the the mechanistic definition of what a vaccine does if not the outcome definition but, um, but clearly most people don't understand it to mean what you just said and so in that sense we are doing a disservice to the grand debate by using that word when people don't associate it with what we just said yeah and we're, and we're so used to thinking about anti-vaxxers as irresponsible people on the edge of society doing crazy things that are going to harm, that put uh, vulnerable people at risk, right? That's what we think about when we talk about childhood vaccines. Um, and so we, then when we transfer that to this vaccine that isn't sterilizing, that, that where the, the decision really should just be a personal medical decision based on your risk characteristics, not something that's moralized and, and turned to turn into this, like this socially divisive, uh, d divisive policy, that is the problem, right? So now we have we're using this vaccine in in ways the word vaccine in a way to to destroy that has resulted in the destruction of the trust in public health, um, in overselling by public health of the the capacity of this vaccine. They they, they essentially use like it's like a propaganda campaign mm. that to 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 get to get people to take this instead of just saying to talk to, well go see your doctor is it right for you, which is what they should have done. They they instead turn this into the especially if you're older it's really important to take it. Um, they turn this in this like ridiculous thing where like you can't go fly. I mean, Canada you couldn't leave the country. You couldn't even travel if you were unvaccinated. I know. <laughs> I mean, listen. I when 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 my last book dropped and uh, I was getting invited to some really really high profile shows. Uh, I couldn't go because in the U.S. you could still travel, but Canada had locked us down. 
And I said, look, guys, I really want to come, but I can only phone it in through Zoom. And they're like, no, you have to be in person. They they couldn't understand that uh, our dear leader Trudeau had said no. So so I hear you. I. But why? I mean, what was the purpose? The purpose was to in- induce, is to is essentially make people who've decided not to get the vaccine for whatever reason into social pariahs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, since you mentioned Canada, it's a perfect segue to a non-COVID related question, but a very important one. Uh, Americans have this uh, romanticized view of the Canadian healthcare system, whereby, you know, when you start getting an itchy throat, there is some magic eye cloud that picks that up. And then a really good looking physician will come down your chimney and take care of you because it's free. It's utopian. It's unicornia. Now, of course, it is free other than I pay several hundred thousand dollars of taxes so that everybody else gets it for free. But it's not free for me. So as a health economist, using whichever metric you want, put all of them together, is Canada the utopia when it comes to universal health care or uh, am I right in thinking that you have to live <laughs> through it and wait for four years for a personal physician and wait for 18 hours at the emergency room? And just like all socialist things, eventually it will fall falter under its weight. What what, are, what is your position? Okay, so let me let me uh, let me segue into this answer through a, a bit of COVID stuff because I think it, sure. the COVID, the COVID is like ex- exposed some under underlying serious problems inside the Canadian healthcare system, uh, and then then I'll move to the my put my health economics hat on and, and try to answer your question in the perfect perfect. Um, uh, so during COVID, what's happened to the Canadian healthcare system is that it's 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 very clearly. Uh, uh, a lot of Canadian COVID policy has been driven by this idea that the, that the, it was just so easy to overwhelm the Canadian healthcare system, right? Um, and uh, you know, I think a lot of people have delayed basic care through COVID. It's been much more difficult than normal to get appointments. I mean, you know, baseline, a lot of people would complain about how difficult it was to get appointments in the Canadian healthcare system prior prior to COVID. You have these like surveys. It's gotten much worse during COVID. Um, Doctors within the healthcare system, Canadian healthcare system, that that have been COVID lockdown skeptics have seen um, the physician agencies, the the regulatory agencies that that oversee physician practice, um, like the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, go after them, their licenses, in order to prevent them from doing what they think is best for their patients. Um, so it's it's I think the uh, the that COVID has exposed real problems inside the Canadian healthcare system. There's been huge shortages of drugs. I heard there's just a, recently there's a sh- big shortage on you know, like Tylenol and basic medicines um, for, for children right now going on, um, and, which have gotten worse during COVID. Uh, so so I, think, uh, I think you have like tremendous problems inside the Canadian healthcare system. Now, I should say this, uh, uh, so I say this as, a criti- as, a, as criticizing the Canadian healthcare system, the American healthcare system has had also exposed tremendous problems as a consequence of COVID during COVID, like all these miss miss screenings of care. A lot, all, all that, a lot, a lot of that happened in the United States as well, especially in places that impose lockdowns. Um, uh, so, so I think um, let me just start with that. Uh, now, let me take the question in the in the, in the spirit you me- mentioned it. And so, let me just let me just do this as a, as a framework because I, I think the the bottom line is there is no utopian healthcare system. Right. Every healthcare system makes trade offs. 
And the question is, what are the nature of those those trade-offs, and what uh, what do the do, do the people inside those healthcare systems really want? Uh, and, and so uh, and and so like if you so very broadly, there's like three different kinds of healthcare systems around the world. There's there's like these the systems called uh, the the, the beverage beverage healthcare systems, named after the a, a Canadian a, a a a UK health minister beverage who implemented in the UK. Another way of saying it is socialized medicine. In those socialized medical systems like Canada, the UK, uh, what you have is a, a government payer for all healthcare, and also almost all of uh, all hospitals, physicians essentially are in the employ of, of a government entity. Right, so there's very little. Uh, th- there may be private entities that provide healthcare, but they're they're generally on the on the margins, not not the central, uh, not not at the center. Um, you have uh, a Bismarckian model, kind of like what you see in Germany or Japan. There, what you have is is a lot of still a lot of government role in healthcare uh, in, in price setting. Uh, you have in you do have like private insurers sometimes or pri- private private providers. Uh, certainly, private providers of care. You have private hospitals, and, and so you, you. But so, but a, a tremendous role of government in financing all, all a lot of the private provision of care. And then you have a crazy system like the United States, which is kind of a. It looks more like a Bismarckian system by the day, but you have large numbers of people who don't have access to health insurance at all or health care at all. Um, so those are the three kinds of things, and within those within those three, there are tremendous trade offs, right? So the Beveridgean systems like Canada and uh, and and the UK, they have like you know they have universal coverage, which is good, um, but they also have long queues for services often, and they have uh, slow adoption of new technologies, which is which actually can be both good or bad. A lot of new technologies don't actually cost a lot, and don't do much, um, so that can be good. But on the other hand, you have effective technologies that are, take a long time to get adopted. You have people who want care that then seek care outside of Canada because they, it takes too long to get care within Canada. I think there's still provide there is the opportunity for private provision of care within Canada. Um, so, but that's like seen as like socially bad, like you're you're, you're violating some some social norm if you do if you seek care like that. Yeah, um, inside Canada, right? Um, uh, so I, so I think like within the Canadian healthcare system, it has some it has some real strengths because this universality is really quite nice. Um, but it doesn't always serve the needs of people when they need it. Um, the uh, Bismarckian systems, I actually like the Bismarckian systems. I wrote a book once on Japanese health policy. And I, I actually, I think there's a lot to admire there. Um, um, but the, 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 the Bismarckian systems, you have private provision of care generally. Um, and you have, uh, but you have the government, which makes sure that everyone has access to financing for that care. Uh, but can you opt out? I mean, are your taxes still funding the the government, uh, you know, overlay of of to or, or can you opt out of the public and therefore you only are going through the private route? I mean, the, the so I mean, the care you're getting is generally from doctors who aren't go- working for the government. That's okay. that's the norm. Um, the uh, I mean, there's exceptions, but that's the norm. Um, you you uh, like just take Japan. Uh, most of the financing happens from your your employer. Right, so you work for Sony. Sony offers a large, large employer plan, um, and there's cross subsidies though. So, like you work for Sony, Sony then takes some of the money that you would have otherwise earned as wages and gives it to the government so that it funds care for the elderly. 
right? So the, the, there's these cross subsidies, from, especially from large plans. If you work for a small employer, they're big groups uh, that get together and finance it. Um, the government's role tends to be to, to on the on the margin for the people who don't have health, health insurance otherwise, uh, you know, the, the, the poor, the elderly, um, and and, it, and and it's also in price setting. So this is where I think it can go wrong in Bismarck systems. Uh, uh, the, 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 in fact, also in, in, um, in, 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 in Canadian system as well, you see similar things. The, the government tries to set the price of care, um, for like, but there's thousands of different kinds of care you can get. And very often it gets the prices wrong. Right. And so it's hard to like the, the extreme is, um, in, in like the UK or in Canada, it, it the, the government says, I'm not going to cover the service at all even if potentially is useful um, for somebody uh, in, in Bismarck systems, they, they, they have like the, the uh, healthcare providers, uh, you know, like in the U S would be something like the American medical association is sitting at the table saying, well, what, what should be the prices of all of these care, these, these types of care. If I go get an appendectomy, if I go get a cataract surgery, how much should the doctor be reimbursed? How much should the hospital be reimbursed? And they can often get that very wrong. And that results in distortions in what kind of care you get. Right. Um, uh, so that's 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 a major problem. Um, in both the Bismarck and the beverage system, but especially the beverage system, health policy becomes a central political football between the parties that are involved in politics around this. There's there's this tension always between if we if we make this too generous, then the taxes will go up and you know some some you know politically will suffer but if you don't make it generous enough you get accused of of killing killing people uh, on you know w- in waiting rooms because it takes too long to get seen right and so you have that 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 politicization of health health uh, healthcare decisions which i find i i actually find really distasteful um but i think that's a central feature of of the kinds of systems you have like in canada and uk you just can't get away from it because the government plays such an important role, both in the financing and in the provision of care. Well, you know, I mean, I can tell you as someone who's lived in Canada for many years, uh, yes, I'd like Americans to know that it's hardly utopian. Uh, just a few days ago, my wife went for a, you know, a yearly kind of gyneco- gynecological checkup. And in the morning she said, well, you know, I'll see you this evening. I said, what do you mean? What are, what are you doing all day? She said, well, it's probably take four, five, six, seven hours of waiting at the doctor's office. So now imagine if you are in the US where you are, you know, privately funding your 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 healthcare. You know, you go to the physician and within an hour you're out. Whereas here, this wasn't an emergency room meeting. This is a scheduled meeting. So if she's scheduled at 10 in the morning, she might be seen at 4:30. Therefore, her visit to the doctors is a one-day event. And then she came home at night. I mean, but I'm, I'm being literal. I'm not being hyperbolic. And yeah. So, so again, people, so never mind again, the, 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 the philosophical conversation as to whether, look, if you, both you and I are getting the exact same medical coverage, why is it that I have to pay $200,000 for it? Whereas you don't pay at all. Right. I mean, because yeah. you know, you don't make enough money. So, you know, do we believe in this kind of socialist utopia quote utopia? And so, okay. So you don't, I mean, what you're basically saying is too little control is not good. Too much control. It's kind of the old, you know, everything is, in moderation. Well, it's not, it's, it's, it's just like funny mix, right? So you have to have uh, like normally in a, in a, in economy prices set uh, expectations about relative scarcity, 
right. and drive p- things, drive decisions toward things that are less scarce, uh, away from things that are scarce, because uh, it's because it's and it's socially beneficial because you don't want everyone get ha- to, to like you know uh, to, to to get something that's really really expensive to produce. Um, you only want the the people who value it the most to get it, like right. from a social point of view. Right. So uh, the the problem in like in healthcare is is the price setting is such that it the the prices don't reflect that relative scarcity, and that's especially true in systems like Canada, like the UK. But also, unfortunately, even in the U.S., it's not a free market. The other aspect of it that's really complicated is care. Healthcare is really expensive, much too expensive for any most people to afford. And so you have to have insurance. You have to have third-party payment, either the government, like in the U, in the in Canada, or 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 health insurers. And the third-party payers aren't very good at monitoring the the, the people within the system. For, to, for, to, and so very often you end up with a lot of money going to care that doesn't provide a lot of good. Right. Those are, those are central economic realities. And that's why there's no utopia. That's why the, you know, if someone tells you the Canadian healthcare system is utopia, you just, you should just like shake your head sadly. Um, you know, in, in the U.S., same thing is true as the U.S., right? You actually, um, yeah, there's sometimes you can get care very quickly, but there's been lots of delays in care in the U.S. as well in healthcare systems that are that are uh, sort of mismanaging how how the money is spent especially during covid has been terrible like you it took you, you could take like you could take a quite a long time just to get uh, basic cancer screening in the US during covid right gotcha um, so uh, i mean i just think um the 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 uh the running of healthcare systems defies ideology at it's 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 still it's it in in some sense it's like a such a basic economic problem how do you uh, move resources around to like maximize the health of a population. But the price systems that normally allow us to send information to each other about what the right things are, what what the right things to do are don't work. The government's too too closely involved in price setting. Um, when when the market does it, it often just gets distortions because you have you know monopoly power from, from right. drugs setting drugs, you have um, information differences, re- difficulties in assessing whether new technologies are good or bad. Um, so the market also also fails. The government fails um, in 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 the price setting, and you have this, and you have the absolute necessity of third party payment, or else you have vast numbers of people who couldn't get even the most basic care because they couldn't afford it. Um, so it's just a mess. <laughs> this is what I do for a living, by the way, guy. This is like trying to tell people how how messy it is, and trying to think of ways to try to try to improve things at least on the margin. But you yeah. have bottom line. You have to live under the Canadian system or the U.S. system. Which one you're going for? I mean, we're, you know, I'm a, <laughs> I, I'm a laptop class fancy professor at a, at a at a at a university with pretty good health insurance. I'd much prefer a U.S. system. Right. If I'm dirt poor and I have no other prospects, maybe I prefer the Canadian system. Yeah. Got gotcha. you. Okay, a couple of last questions, uh, more personal level, uh, but of course I could keep you here for another five hours. Uh, I often ask all my guests the following questions, and maybe it was driven by the fact that in my next book, which will be out in July, uh, talking about how to live a happy and good life, I talk about you know trying to live life in such a way that you minimize looking backwards any regrets that you have, and uh, and here I'll I'll point to uh, one of my former uh, uh, doctoral professors uh, at Cornell. He his name is Tom Gilovich, who pioneered 
the study of psychology of regret, specifically the fact that we can regret things either due to actions or inaction. So uh, I, I regret due to action would be, I, I regret that I cheated on my wife and ruined my marriage and I'm, I'm such an idiot. Uh, regret due to inaction is, uh, you know, I went into medicine because my dad was a physician, but the reality is I always wanted to be an artist. And now I regret the fact that I never pursued my love for art. Over the long term, most people, Jay, end up regretting things due to inaction. And so with that uh, introduction, if I were to ask you, you're still a relatively young man, so you still have hopefully many more years to live. But if I asked you right now, do you have any sources of regret? And if you don't mind sharing them, what would these be? I mean, I've thought deeply about my my actions during COVID. Like what drove me to do this, to, to speak up? Because it would have been much... I mean, like my colleagues who didn't speak up, they, right. they, you know, they get grants, they get, I mean, they, they get to live the idyllic life that I used to live before COVID. Um, but I, I don't regret, I don't regret it. I mean, I don't regret, even though it's led to like broken friendships, even though it's led to, I think in some ways, loss of reputation in some, in, in some circles, um, even though, even though it's led to like, I mean, I may never get another NIH grant again. I, I don't know, since I spent so much time criticizing Tony Fauci, Um I, I I I don't regret. It. I don't I don't know what the purpose of my life was if I if it wasn't to speak up at a time like this. Beautifully said. And can I can I just uh, offer you some? If you if you're regretting anything, let me assuage those concerns. One of the, when people often ask me, you know, why are you so irreverent to all the nonsense and you speak out and you don't care, you do walk like a honey badger? I say, well, look, I have a very exacting code of personal conduct, and it goes something like this. Uh, at the end of the night, when I lay my head on the pillow and I'm about to go to sleep, there's only one thing that's going to stop the insomnia, the existential insomnia. And that is, was I fully true? Did I did I walk away and equivocate against what I consider to be any falsehoods? If yes, then I'm a charlatan. If no, I'm going to sleep like a baby. So from that perspective, you really went after what you considered honestly and truthfully to be the truth. And so you've got, in my book, nothing to regret. Who cares about the NIH grant? I understand that there is a careerism involved. There's pragmatic decisions that you have to make. But existentially, at the deepest level, you've got nothing to regret. I, I mean, I, I, that's, I feel like that. I feel that. Uh, and I, I really, I couldn't, I didn't have a choice. I really didn't get, I mean, like what I, I if, if I hadn't spoken up, I would spend the rest of my life regretting that I hadn't done exactly. it. When, when, when you said what you said, and, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to like look back on my career, uh, were there times when I could have spoken up more? I mean, I mean, I think probably yes, but I was a lot of times like it, you know, uh, if I'm, if I'm uncertain, if I'm looking at the data and I can't tell, I don't feel comfortable jumping, jumping up and saying, you know, do this, do this, do this, even though I, there's this deep uncertainty about it, the data, right. In COVID, I've never felt that. Like, so when I've said, when I've, when I've gotten up and yelled about like, look, we don't, it's, it's my first thing I, I got up and yelled about was we don't have the data to make this decision. Right. I'm not saying don't make the decision. I'm saying we don't have the data. I think that was right. I think I, we didn't have the data and I helped try to create like, the, the the studies that would produce the data, right? Uh, later in the pandemic, when we're when when we're, we're so obviously following the wrong policy, and it was so clear from the data, I felt completely comfortable yelling, getting up. I, I do think if I'm going to talk about regrets, um, I, I think there are times in my life where the data were, were equivocal, and I wasn't sure. I suspected the data ran some way on some policy or another. 
And I shrank back because I was like, okay, what if I'm wrong in my reading of the data and it kind of turns out the other way? Maybe I could be more bold in those situations along, but you know, like there's a, there's a tension in academics. You can always caveat. Okay. Yeah. 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 A, if B, C and D are right, but what if B, C and D are wrong? Well, then maybe not a right. Um, in, it turns out being a public intellectual, you basically need to take a very clear position. (laughs) Otherwise people don't, don't, uh, you know, you're not, you're not really being effective. Uh, um, well, incidentally, yesterday I put out a little quick uh, tweet and then I turned it into a very small, like 400 word article where I was talking about, the, you know, the people that we listen to are not fence sitters. They're not equivocators. That doesn't mean, I mean, be, you should have epistemic humility in that if you don't know for sure, don't pretend that you know. But when yeah. you know, walk with the assuredness of someone that you know. Right. No. And I think, I think I, I completely agree with that. I think that's really wise. And, uh, what I'm, and I think before the pen, this is a great lesson I've learned in the pandemic. I've learned first how to, how to be, how to express my thoughts more clearly in a public setting when it's not just surrounded by economists. Right. <laughs> just, you know, that turns out to be a different skill than, than, you know, running a regression or something. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, uh, the other, the other thing I've learned is, you know, let's say there's uncertainty in the data like it could, could go one way or the other you can still take a clear position and be honest yeah don't overstate what you don't know about what's not known you could the, the clear position could just be you know we don't know right this and it's really important we don't know this is something we really need to know right. this um and i think that uh i think people find that compelling when you're honest about that uh and uh, you know there's no reason just because you're uh speaking in public uh, you, and you can get a lot, you can, you can, you can draw a lot of deserved attention to that because now what you've done is called others in the public debate to epistemic humility. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, okay. Last question. Are there any projects that you're currently working on? Oh, you know, uh, uh a, a book for the masses about the hell I went through when I took my COVID position, or is there anything that you'd like yeah, to promote? I, 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 I'm anyway. writing that book. I'm writing. Oh, I'm writing it. Yeah, I'm writing that book. Oh, <laughs> so this is your first trade book. Is that true? Uh, yeah, I mean, I did. I have a, I have a, <laughs> I have a, a policy book on on Japanese health policy that I wrote as a guide. So, to... so there were four people, including your wife, who read it. Basically. Who read that? Then there's a there's a health the health economics textbook. Okay. Got, actually, it's pretty. It, it sold pretty well, and it has, it has some nice jokes in it. Gap, not 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 like your quality jokes, but there's some nice jokes <laughs> in it. Uh, and then and then there's uh, but th- this one will be the first. Uh, I mean, I I basically I, uh, <laughs> I've like talked with prime ministers and popes. I've talked to like uh, you know presidents and uh, governors, and I've sat at the table where a lot of really important decisions were made. Um, and uh, the, uh, my personal life has just been—I uh, mean, not my family. Thank God, that's still still quite—you uh, know—it's it's sustained me through the pandemic. My faith has been intact, but like the 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 friendships and the uh, you know the death threats and the like that—that's—it's been a turmoil. Um, and I don't know. I feel a little self-indulgent, honestly, yeah, to like write this, but I think it's worth writing just as a. No, as a, I think it's worth it. No, no, I, I. I you know, just having, I don't know you very well so far, but you know, in the little that I've gotten to know you, it is count me in as a reader of that book. When is it? What's the schedule? What's the time? Uh, there's no schedule at this point. I'm still, I'm still like planning in the planning stages of it. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly. I might, I might, uh, I'm talking about whether I write it with Martin Kildorf or not, or I'm not still, we're still, we're still thinking through some of that. Um, they're talking through some of that. I, I basically decided I wasn't going to do think about this until after the 
after the pandemic, it sort of calmed down, and, and that my role in in talking, commenting about uh, about policy it, it become less important. Um, and I'm, I think we're starting to head to that phase. Uh, the other the other aspect of it uh, is. I started this thing with Martin Kuldorf and, and, and Scott Atlas uh, called the Academy of Science and Freedom um, with Hillsdale College. And the, the, there's two missions. Um, one is to restore free discussion, free, free and open discussion within science. We saw during the pandemic was a suppression of the ability to have open scientific discussion on COVID policy. That is a, and as, as, as I found out that we talked about earlier in, in this conversation, it's broader than just COVID. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of problems even within science. So restore free, free and open discussion within science. And then second to restore the proper place of science in society. Yes. Right. So like president Eisenhower, I guess once said that scientists should be on tap, not on top. Right. Yes. Beautiful. It really was well, like, we, we don't have the, knowledge or wisdom to structure all of society that's insane right but, but if you ask me about like the how should uh how should insurance uh, systems be set up to price health care you can ask me i, I have some exper- expertise about that right uh speaking of the hillsdale project uh, uh in uh last february i was invited to be the uh i guess one of the maybe the key speaker at a naples florida event that was held, that was organized by Hillsdale. Uh, it, was, it was a great, great time. There, there, I just couldn't believe it, the generosity and the hospitality of Hillsdale and the 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 loyalty of the people that who were there, most of whom were not. Uh, that was not their alma mater, but yet they they you know they they support the mission of Hillsdale. And uh, the 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 next day after my um, my talk. Uh, the president of Hillsdale, Larry Arn, uh, came up to me. I was with my my entire family. We chatted a bit. And he goes, "Not only do I love your scientific work, but my God, you're you're such a hoot," or something like that. And then he said, "Oh, I want to connect you." At the time, you and I hadn't met yet, but of course, I knew who you were. I want to connect you with yourself and the two other guys. But I've never heard back. So if you if you have Larry Arn's ear, he knows where to find me. I await the call. Uh, so I'll, yes. I'll tell him. I mean, he's uh, he's he's an amazing man, actually. I think, really I think the, the, the Hillsdale unique. They don't take any federal money uh, right. from the, the U.S. government, and that makes it make, allows them to be quite independent. Um, I mean, it also makes them. I think uh, it creates this situation where, like, po- they're p- easy political targets. Yes. Um, uh, but you know what? Uh, you have to like. I th- I think like when you're independent, or when you're like saying things that are worth hearing. You're often going to draw fire. That's not something. One lesson I've learned during the pandemic. Well, and to speak to your earlier point, when you were saying, "Oh, do I?" This is you speaking. Do I regret that I jumped into the COVID thing or not? And I gave you my answer of why you should not regret. We can apply that exact same logic to Hillsdale, right? Because Hillsdale is competing in an ecosystem with you know thousands of other schools, right? Most of which we've never heard of, and yet by them being authentic. Rightly or wrongly, but by taking a position, being principled, being honey badgers, they were able to elevate themselves out of this ecosystem that would have otherwise rendered them invisible. Here there are a school that is way more known than what you would expect such a school to be known at, to that yeah. extent. And it's, I think, because they're, they're true and authentic. So kudos well, to I them. Th- I think, I mean, that like there's a lesson for society more broadly around yeah. this. Like, we what imagine a society that actually just encourages that, like let's encourages people to be authentic, encourages people to take even controversial positions, 
and we don't destroy each other over it. We we try to we I mean we may dispute each other, but we but we seek to learn from each other. That that's a much healthier society. Uh, that's what actually that's what I thought American society. I, I mean, I, I was born in India. I grew up in India uh, till I was four, and then we came to the U.S. I don't I don't I like my vision of American has always been that. Like that's the I, that's what that's what I thought America was good at, and it's been a shock to to learn, or uh, probably even before the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic that. America failed at that, right? You know, we just we just didn't allow that. We have to we have to restore. It's not just it's just America. The, the the whole world really ought to have that as its norm. Like we can, we we could be giants walking on the earth together. That's um, so true. You know, what a beautiful way to end our chat. Uh, usually, when uh, after such conversations, usually. That my guest will receive hate mail as to why they went on Gad Sachs' show, that crazy evolutionary psychologist. I suspect that this time around, I will be receiving more hate. Why did you bring this COVID guy <laughs> on your show? So thank you for making me the second most hated guy in this conversation. Uh, it, I don't know, God. I think I think a lot of people will enjoy this conversation. I, I think so. Too. I, you know what? I, I usually don't go, uh, usually by about an hour, I'm done. So the fact that we're almost gone two hours is only a testament. Oh, goodness, to, this has been two hours. Wow. Almost two hours. How amazing it is to chat with you. Thank you so much for being on. I hope that we'll stay in touch and have many future conversations and meet at many future venues. Uh, you're a delight to talk to. Thank you so much, Jay. Thank you, God. You are as well. Cheers.